I'll just begin by saying good morning again to all of you who are here and those of you also in our contemporary service. It's great to be with you on this Sunday after Easter. We celebrated last week the resurrection of Jesus, the truth that Jesus is not dead but alive and among us still to strengthen us and lead us in his way. We're gathered in that joy today. And I'm glad that some of you are there in our contemporary service right now, or those of you who are joining us online. We trade our messages back and forth every week between our traditional and contemporary worship venues. It's an opportunity for us to learn and grow together in the way of Jesus. As promised, we're starting a new series today. It is a series on the book of Revelation, maybe the most famous, and I would say very probably the most infamous book in the Christian Bible. There it is, hanging out way at the end. If you're gonna follow along during the message today, you can even kind of turn to the back of the Bible right now if you would like to. We'll be there a little bit later. Over the course of my life, I have had kind of a mixed relationship with the book of Revelation. I don't know if maybe this has been true for anybody else also. I think there were times of my Christian life, maybe back in my kind of late teen years, I was pretty fascinated with the book of Revelation. What, is, what does it reveal and what does it tell me about is the end of the world coming and how does it all play out? And there are these fantastical images in Revelation of dragons and beasts and battles and stuff like that. And then I think after a number of years, maybe I got a little bit disillusioned with that and I kind of distanced myself and I bet there were years and years where I really didn't, not only didn't read Revelation, but really didn't think about it much at all. And that felt pretty comfortable to me. Maybe you've been in the same place, read Revelation or not read Revelation or been suspicious of it or wonder what it was. In my house, my wife began rereading Revelation recently and commented to me, this sounds more like the fantasy novels that our son reads than it sounds like the rest of the Bible. What's with all this crazy stuff? What, is this, what does all that mean? You know, the truth is that reading Revelation can be kind of dangerous, actually. It can be dangerous in a couple different ways. Some of us have read the Bible over the years or read Revelation in particular as if it was a script, like an end times script, a coded playbook that tells you how all the plays are gonna play out until finally the end of the world comes. And if you can read the signs of the times and locate them on the script, then you can figure out where you are and maybe how much time you've got left or something like that. Any of you remember the name Harold Camping? Does that ring a bell for you at all? He was in the news about almost six years ago now. Uh, this, this is a billboard here from Harold Camping. You'll see it in just a second. There you go, billboard from Harold Camping. He predicted the end of the world in 2011. Uh, as you may have noticed, it didn't happen, but he calculated that the last day of this world would be May 21st, 2011. And then when that day passed, he actually realized, I miscalculated, it was October 21st, 2011. That day came and went. And I don't know if you kept up with the news after both of those days came and went, but he was really disillusioned, very disappointed, and very confident in that prediction, and it, and it didn't happen. And unfortunately, some of his followers really put their faith in that prediction. Some of them really staked their lives, put themselves in life-threatening situations based on that promise. And a few people died because of that promise and then it didn't come true. It can be dangerous, right? When, when I was younger, there was another pretty famous tragedy. It was a tragedy in Waco, Texas. Some of you may remember the Branch Davidians or you've heard of them or read about them. There was a guy named David Koresh. Yeah, he gathered his followers here in a compound in Waco, Texas. For those of us who are not from Waco, it was in 1993 that we all started pronouncing it Waco, Texas. It was kind of famous in the news during that time. But this is a very sad event. A guy who took his name, his given name was not David Koresh. He took that name because David was like King David from the Bible. And Koresh is another Hebrew word associated with the coming of the Messiah. And he led people to believe that he was the Messiah. And he put together a, a reading of parts of the book of Revelation that said, I'm the guy, the time is now, be faithful to me. 
And unfortunately, they wound up provoking the FBI and got into a battle that ended in the firestorm that you saw there, and a lot of people lost their lives. Reading Revelation can be dangerous. We could spend hours talking through the names of cults and religions and movements of all kinds that have played out and read the book of Revelation like a script. From the very popular Left Behind novels and movies to the birth of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all are built on this script reading of Revelation. Now, unfortunately, there are some problems with reading Revelation as a script. Historically and intellectually, there are lots of problems. But I think if we could limit ourselves to just one, every person who's ever read Revelation that way has been wrong, has proved to be wrong. Unfortunately, for the rest of us, we've seen Revelation read that way, and then we've just backed off. There are other dangerous ways to read Revelation. When we see how badly it can go, other Christians have said, I'm just not gonna read that book. That didn't sound very good at all, right? Now on the upside, if you don't read Revelation, you can't form any Revelation-based cults. So that's kind, of a, that's kind of the upside of this. But the downside is, if God has anything to say to us through the book of Revelation that is in our Bible right there at the very end, then we're simply not listening, right? Like a kid with our fingers in our ears, la, 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 I don't wanna hear you, it's too, I don't wanna hear it and we're not listening at all. I think there's a better way than this. And what I'd like to share with you starting today and for the next four weeks of the series after today is a different way of reading Revelation that I think is compelling and helpful and faithful and responsible and leads us to be attentive to what God is saying to his church even today. So I wanna invite you, if you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app, now's a good time to open that up. We're gonna to turn to Revelation chapter one. You can turn to Revelation 1, 4. We're gonna read that in just a second. Uh, if you're using the Quest Bible, if it makes it easier for you to find, it's on page 1817, 1817. Revelation comes from a vision that a Christian named John received from the risen Lord Jesus. He was exiled onto the island of Patmos, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, probably persecuted and arrested for being a Christian. He was exiled, and there the Lord appeared to him. God gave him a vision, and Revelation is, is what he wrote down. This verse that I want to show you in John chapter 1, verse 4, sets this whole thing up. I, I don't know if I would say this is the most important book in the or verse in the book of Revelation, but I would say it's kind of a key that unlocks the box. If, if we understand this right, it's gonna put us on the right path to understanding the rest of this box, the rest of this book. So this is, this is John chapter one, verse four, just even the first half of the verse. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Okay, this is how ancient letters began. Revelation is a letter. It's from a guy named John, I told you about him already, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, this is where a lot of people have gone wrong reading the book of Revelation. As if, John, as if Revelation 1-4 said, John, to the Christians in North America in the 20th and 21st centuries. And then we read it through the events of the geopolitical events of today, the signs of the times, the technological advances, without which we would not be able to decode the book of Revelation. But then we think, what about those poor souls, those poor saps who read it in the first place? They apparently weren't supposed to understand it. How would they ever have known what it meant? But John said it was to them. I think this is a good place for us to be reminded of a, a motto that I've shared with you in the past and I think it's good to be reminded of it now. The Bible was written for us, though not to us. The Bible was written for us, 
but not to us. It was written to other people first. This part of the Bible was written to seven churches in Asia many years ago. These are real communities and real places. I brought a map along to show you where these Christian communities were, these seven churches in the province of Asia. This is a map of the Mediterranean world. And right over here in the eastern part of what is modern day Turkey, it's labeled Asia Minor, or sometimes historically it was called Anatolia. There are seven communities here, seven cities with Christian churches in them. They have names like Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and so forth. And John wrote Revelation to them as a letter. Now I want to practice with you, take some samples of how is this a letter to them. Before we get to the later parts of the book of Revelation with all the imagery about the monsters and the dragons and all that that's going to stand for, let's first read these opening chapters that sets that in context for us. So if you still have your Bible open, you want to keep it open to these same pages. We're going to stay right here for a few minutes today. The first thing we're going to read is what John wrote to the church in Smyrna. Now you can turn to page 1818 or Revelation 2 verse 8. And let me set the context here for you for a minute. Jesus appears, the Lord Jesus appears to John, and when, when John sees him, he describes the risen Jesus in his vision this way. He said, I saw one like a son of man, this is one of the names for Jesus, and he's walking among seven lampstands, which are a symbol for churches, for seven churches, called to shine the light of Christ in the world, seven lampstands. And this one like a son of man, this Lord Jesus, had in his hand seven stars, and John says to us a little bit earlier, these stand for seven messengers or seven angels, seven heavenly messengers to the churches. And the Lord Jesus says to John, write this down to each of these, each of these messengers in each of these churches. And we're going to read this in the letter to Smyrna. Now, first, before we read it, I want to show you a couple pictures. These are, these are pictures of ancient Smyrna. So you can see here on the left is the columns that are left over from a glorious temple, a glorious pagan temple in ancient Smyrna. And then over on the right are some statues, some golden statues. What I think is interesting about these is that they, they're kind of golden, idealized figures. They didn't have airbrushing and Photoshop back in the day, so they just used gold sculptures to say, this is what it looks like when you're perfect. And this is a picture of the god Poseidon. And I think that that's a, that's a picture of Artemis over there, or in the Roman pantheon, she's called Diana. These are some pictures of, of really quite an impressive place in ancient Smyrna, a wealthy place that could afford to build all these things. But the Christian community in Smyrna was not doing so well. They were excluded from the commerce and the wealth of society. They were a downtrodden church. And this is what Jesus says to write to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again, right? That's the Lord Jesus. He's writing to people who are suffering and he reminds them, I actually died and came to life again. So this is somebody with the power to bring hope. And then he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. How can you say that sort of thing when you're, when you're poor, but you're really rich? I think some of us in this church community have come to understand that through our partnership with our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ in Haiti. You know, a lot of us have traveled to our partnership there. A lot of you sponsor kids in the school and the orphanage in Haiti. Maybe you've been involved in our ministry there in other ways. Especially those who've been there, if you've heard the stories or seen the pictures. When we visit Haiti, I'm, always, I'm visiting people who have one one-hundredth the possessions and wealth that I have or that we have. And honestly, it's probably less than that. But while they have one one-hundredth the wealth and the assets and the possessions, sometimes I think they have a hundred times the joy. Right? 
And I think about them when I read this letter to the church in Smyrna, and I think, man, if we would even learn in our hearts and our minds to break the equation between material wealth and joy in life or spiritual joy, that would probably move us forward. And Jesus is speaking through John to the church in Smyrna, and he says, I I know you have it hard. You are afflicted. I know your poverty, yet I want you to know that you are rich. And then he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, we got to be careful there, because sometimes people have taken verses like this and taken them in the direction of violent anti-Semitism, and it's not at all what this is about. In fact, we can know that's not what this is about because the author of this book is Jewish. He's writing to Christians, at least some of whom are Jewish, who follow the Jewish Messiah and Rabbi Jesus. So this is not some person being anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. But rather, these followers of Jesus, probably many of them were Jewish, and they've been kicked out of the synagogue in town because they follow Jesus, and the other Jews have said, you're not even really with us anymore, so get out. And they feel they're, they're a persecuted people. And Jesus, or, yeah, Jesus speaks through John to recognize that. Then he says in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. It says, be faithful, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. In fact, there's a couple key words in the churches, uh, in the letters to the churches here that are afflicted and persecuted. Smyrna is one, Philadelphia is another one. And these are, the, these are the key terms that you can remember in Jesus' message to the afflicted churches. He says to them, be faithful. We can put that slide up here. Jesus says, be faithful, endure patiently, and hold on. And hold on. You can imagine how if you're in a place of real affliction and you see the vision, you're told that John saw Jesus not dead anymore but alive, triumphing over persecution and violence and death, and he walks among the churches. He's still present. Now, depending on where you are in life, that could function differently. But if you're afflicted for the sake of the Lord Jesus and you find out he's alive and he's still with you, then Jesus can say to you, hold on. I've got you, I'm with you, and this suffering is not permanent. This is not the end. In fact, even if you die with me, you will rise again. And it's a word of great promise and great hope to those who are afflicted and persecuted. But these churches that Jesus is speaking to through John are not all in the same life circumstances. Some of them are persecuted and afflicted. Some of them are way over on the other end of the spectrum. They're living life just fine, thank you very much. And in fact, they've gotten pretty complacent about the whole thing. Let me show you one of these letters. If you want to maybe turn a page forward, this is going to be to the church in Sardis, which is Revelation 3.1. And if you got your Quest Bible, it's page 1820. Before we read that, though, I want to jump back and show you a picture. This is a picture from ancient Sardis. Again, you can see these tall columns constructed at great expense and great labor. It's not easy to erect stone columns like this in the ancient world. They valued this a lot. It's a big building. This was a, a temple, uh, again, of Artemis or a temple of Diana, the Roman goddess there in Sardis. Sardis was a fairly wealthy town. It was doing just fine. But uh, uh, let me read to you what Jesus said to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Then he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is just the opposite of what he said to Smyrna, right? Where you look poor, but you're actually wealthy. Here he says, you look alive, but actually on the inside, you're dead. And in verse two, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Turn around. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You know what that image reminds me of? <laughs> this reminds me of when I used to be a little kid. I'd grown up enough that my, my sister and I were old enough that my parents could leave us at home if they had to go out in the evening and do something. And sometimes they would leave us at home and, we would, and, they, and they would go out in the evening and they would tell us, now no TV tonight, you're not supposed to be watching television, you got homework to do, and when you're done with that, you gotta be in bed by whatever time you're supposed to be in bed. And let me just ask you, when the cat's away, what do the mice do, right? So we were not maybe always exactly obedient in those situations. Sometimes we had other ideas how to spend it. We turn on a TV program and we start watching. And you know what happens at the end of every TV program? Another one starts, right? So you gotta get caught up in that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden we'd be sitting there and the headlights would turn into the driveway, right? The thief would come in the middle of the night and we knew not when. And all of a sudden mom and dad would drive in the driveway, we'd be like, oh no! And we'd flip the TV off and run upstairs and try to pretend like we'd been asleep, you know, for hours, right? But they'd come in the house and they'd put their hand on top of the TV and it'd be warm, right? This is in the olden days when you could put your hand on top of a TV <laughs> and it would be warm, right? And we, we weren't prepared, right? We were complacent. We were sleeping on the commands of our parents and we needed a kick in the pants that said, wake up, stop being faithless, start being faithful and obedient, right? And it's possible that some of us feel like we're in that place where like we're sleeping on the commands of the Lord. We're faithless, not faithful. I'm like, oh, he's not ever coming back, whatever. I'm just caught up in this program. And there's another one, and there's another one. Wake up, Jesus says to the churches. But even to these churches, both Sardis and Laodicea is another one, it's not too late. It's not too late. And I want to jump ahead to this last, the, uh, a last word to the church in Laodicea. It's Revelation 3.20. If you want to follow along with me, you can. Jesus says through John to the church in Laodicea, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I'm not necessarily coming to kick the door down. I don't have to come in judgment. I don't have to come in anger. I'm at the door, open it and let me in. You know, there happens to be a stained glass window right over there in our sanctuary chapel that has an image of Jesus. I'm looking at it right now. That has an image of Jesus standing by the door and knocking. And I know some people in our church family have sat by that window and prayed. It actually came from our old sanctuary way back when on Stewart Street in downtown White Bear Lake. And our church family had the wisdom to move it here. And it can be a place, if you haven't ever seen it before, I'd recommend stopping by maybe after worship today. And you can take a moment and reflect how Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart or collectively on the door of our church's heart and saying it's not too late. And, and if you're sleepy and if you're complacent and you don't think I'm ever coming back and you don't care and it's just fine, just watch TV and forget about me, I'm there. And if you hear me, open the door and I will come in and dine with you and you with me at the feast, at the banquet of God for now and for all eternity. So repent, wake up. Some of these churches were afflicted and persecuted. And some of them, when they heard that Jesus was walking among the churches, that was a little bit threatening and they needed to be unsettled. Jesus comforted the afflicted and now he's afflicting the comfortable, saying, turn to me. But there's another group that's kind of in the middle. And I would call these the uh, compromised churches or maybe the assimilated churches. It's not that they've abandoned the Lord, but they've got kind of the frog in the kettle problem, you know, or just kind of keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And they keep trying to compromise with the values of their world without ever jumping out of the pot. 
and they forget that they have a different identity and a different value system. Let me read you an example of one of these. This is gonna come uh, from the letter to the church in Ephesus. So this is, Ephes- this is Revelation chapter two, and it's in your quest Bible on page 1818. Before we read this, I wanna show you a couple pictures of Ephesus while you're turning the pages there. This is a picture from ancient Ephesus right here. Over on the right side is uh, one of the imperial temples. So this is a temple built to a Roman emperor. And in, uh, in the first and especially second centuries, they worshiped the emperors as if they were divine. The, the God actually resided in the emperors. That's one of the imperial temples. And over here on the left is this huge amphitheater in ancient Ephesus where you can see thousands and thousands of people would gather for the civic festivals and theater and entertainment. This one is designed more for theater. Other places were designed for sporting contests. But this would be a place to tell the stories of the, of the people of the city, of the empire of Rome and gather together for spectacles there in the amphitheater. Let me read you what Jesus, what Jesus said through John to the Christians in ancient Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are Jesus' words to you, listen up. And he said, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that have, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Right? I commend you. Good job on that. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. You know that old song, you've lost that love and feeling? Jesus said it first to the church at Ephesus. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Those were a group of other teachers that were in the area. I think the key word that Jesus is speaking to these compromised, assimilated churches is the word repent. In in, in biblical language, that can kind of have two different images associated with it. One of them means change your mind. Take, think about this differently. You're not aiming at the right thing. You need a new vision for life. Another word picture that's tied up in the word repent is simply the physical act of turning around. You were walking this way, walk that way. I imagine that Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, you're doing a lot of good things. You're making progress in this direction, but you've gotten off course. You're five degrees off, you're 10 degrees off. I don't know what, how far off. You need to turn, you need a course correction. Come back to me or pretty soon you're gonna be the frog in the pot that's boiling and you'll have so assimilated to the values of your culture that you've got no hope and no calling left, no faithfulness to Jesus left. And then at the end of this letter to the church in Ephesus in verse seven, Jesus finishes with a promise to them that's, that's fit to the culture in ancient Ephesus. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In an ancient Ephesus, in, in the temple of Artemis, which is this huge temple in Ephesus, to the god Artemis, or the Roman name was Diana, there was a tree growing in the courtyard, and the fruit was available to the, the worshipers and the priests and the servants of the goddess. And Jesus says through John to the Christians in Ephesus, in language and symbols that they understand, don't, don't eat of the tree of Artemis and go over there. You, you, you're looking for life where it can't be found. You're, you're, you're trying to participate in the values of your culture. You're settling for the counterfeit when I'm offering you the real. And so to the one who is victorious, or some translations say the one who overcomes, which means the one who's faithful to Jesus to the end, who overcomes the temptation and the, and the other paths, the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is not in the temple of Artemis but in the paradise of God.
Revelation's a letter. It's a letter that's written to seven different churches in maybe three roughly different kinds of circumstances, affliction and persecution, to whom the Lord says, hold on, be faithful, endure patiently. Some who are complacent and sleeping on the Lord. And it's, Wake up and I'm at the door, open up. And then to some that are following the Lord, but assimilated, compromised. And he says, repent, I need a course correction from you. I think it's worth us asking ourselves, this was written to them, but it was written for us. And which of those kinds of communities of Christians are we? Are we, are we the persecuted and afflicted church? You know, I don't think so. Not here, not in this part of the world. Some Christians around the world are, and some have been over the centuries. I think maybe within, even within our church community, some of you are more individually at that place. You're at a place of suffering in your life right now. It's hardship. It's poverty. It's grief. It's loneliness. It's suffering. And I think if that's where you find yourself, then the, you can imagine the living Jesus raised from the dead, walking among his church, saying to you, hold on, I got you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And it's a word of hope and encouragement that Jesus is here and you are not alone. Are we a complacent church, sleepy, more dead than alive? I hope not. I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe, maybe some of us, though, are hearing that word addressed to our own hearts today. If that's where you perceive that you are and the word of Jesus to the church to you says, wake up. If you're hearing that word, I'd encourage you, don't ignore it. If, if Jesus is saying, I'm standing at the door, would you please open up? I want to come in. I'd rather come in and dine with you. Let's do it that way. Then hear the word of the Lord that says, wake up and let me in. But what about a compromised church? What about an assimilated church? Trying to follow the Lord, but maybe assimilating so much to the values of our culture that we're forgetting that we have our own identity, our own story, our own distinct values. I did a little experiment this week and I, I, I began to think, we looked at all these pictures, right, of the, of the ancient world, of the monuments that ancient people built to their values, to their belief system, to reinforce certain beliefs about reality and history and behaviors, to, to hold up the things they admired and the examples that they wanted to emulate and inspire future generations to. And I, I wondered to myself, what if an archeologist came to our town? You know, We were suddenly all gone, or maybe it's a thousand years from now and the, the great immigration has happened and we've abandoned this part of the world, I have no idea. But let, just imagine, what if there were archeologists or anthropologists studying our town and said, what are the monuments that they built that reflect their values and their gatherings and what they wanna reinforce? And I wondered, could, could that be one of them? This giant monument that we've built at tremendous expense to ourselves and I stopped by and took this picture on Friday, actually. And then I walked up and took a picture of these little icons or posters that are just a little, like right up there. And those golden statues of Artemis and Poseidon that I saw in the, at Smyrna. Or, and I thought, man, is that how we do it now? Now we, ooh, that's kind of awkward. Is, is that how we do that now? We don't do golden statues. We do Photoshop and airbrushing. Are these the values to which we sacrifice our treasures? Are these the things that we aspire and try to emulate? What are we going to do about that? 
I don't know. Or maybe if you want to direct your eyes up here for a second, maybe this could be another one. This one cuts a little closer to home for me, the little U.S. Bank Stadium. I love sports. I love watching sports on TV. I love going to games. But I thought, what if the archaeologists would come and go, man, they built this thing for like 60,000 people and they spent so much money on it. They got together and we've seen some of the writings from this place and they, and they sing songs together and these look like ancient liturgies and their emotions rise and fall. They sacrifice tremendous treasure to whatever it was that they worshiped in this place. Man, I don't know, this is getting uncomfortable for me. I don't wanna do this a lot longer. But then, you know, or maybe something just kind of more day to day. Some of us who are parents, we really dedicate a lot of our energies on a weekly basis to hockey rinks and soccer fields. And this last one hurts me a lot. Basketball courts, you know. And I just thought, what would the anthropologists and the archaeologists think about what we value? Now, I don't know. Honestly, so in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, appeared to John on the island of Patmos and said, this is what you should write to Ephesus. And I'm just telling you, Jesus did not appear to me in my study this week and say, use those slides, okay? So I don't know, I don't know. I'm just trying to use some scripturally shaped imagination to say, what if this is what the Lord did say to Ephesus, what did he mean for us by that? What would Jesus be saying to us in our context? And I wonder if I was going to read that letter for us, I wonder if Jesus might say something like this, if he would say, to the angel of the church in White Bear Lake and the Northeast Twin Cities, write, I have seen your deeds. I know your deeds. You care for the poor far and near. You're building a community that loves and cares and supports for one another. And you won't tolerate false teaching. You have a passion for the truth, and I commend you. But have you forsaken your first love? Have you lost that loving feeling? Do you love other things more than you love me? Are you seeking life where it really ultimately cannot be found? Are you settling for the counterfeit where I'm offering you the real? We talked on Easter Sunday about our hunger for humanity the way God made it to be. Are we scratching and clawing and searching for it where it cannot be found? And Jesus offers it to us. And I wonder if maybe then he would say, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is faithful to me, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will give you real life. Stop looking for the counterfeit. I think when we read the book of Revelation, it requires discernment. It requires us, first of all, simply to listen and to think and to pray and, and read intelligently. And, and not only that, but to read together and to challenge one another and encourage one another. And over the course of this series in the coming weeks, we're gonna read these colorful images about the dragons and the beasts and the battles. And we're gonna try to remember, how do I read this if, if we're an afflicted church or if we're a complacent church or if we're a compromised church or that's where I am in my life and we're gonna apply this to ourselves. I wanna encourage you to be listening to the Lord Jesus as he walks among the church and to read the book of Revelation. We'll be doing this together on Sunday mornings. Some of you are in our growth groups and the study guides are written for that every week and you can kind of dig into these stories, read a little bit more than we have time to read on Sunday mornings together and, and ask, how is that for us? What's that word gonna be for our context now? Or you may not be in a growth group, but you've heard already about a discussion group that we have today. It was during this worship service, so not today. But if you want to, you can come back at nine next week and there'll be a discussion group at 10.30. And I'd encourage you also to be reading Revelation on your own. Pastor Angie put together a very well-considered daily reading guide. It's on the front of the study guide in your bulletin. It'll be there every week. You can read along with the passages that we're reading together. 
Revelation can be hard to read and hard to understand, but I hope that in the layers that we're sharing and the teaching that we share on Sunday morning, that that will be helpful and fruitful to you. But, but the most important thing we can do is listen to the living and risen Lord Jesus as he speaks to our hearts and he speaks to our heart as a people. Today has been an introduction. Today is setting the stage, it's learning about who this was written to and how it was sent to them and what it could mean for us. Next week, we kind of pull back the curtain. We start to see the revelation. And next week, we're gonna start in the passage that is the beating heart of this whole book, the beating heart of the book of Revelation. So don't miss next week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you have overcome, that you have overcome death and the grave and the power of sin, that you walk among the churches today. And where, where your church is suffering, where there is affliction, among us or in your church around the world, Lord Jesus, we pray for your mercy. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts by your presence and by your word, that we would endure patiently and hold on. We trust you. Where we are sleepy and complacent, asleep at the switch and really not listening to you at all, I pray that you would speak loudly and that our hearts would hear you when you say, wake up. You're at the door and we want to open it. Give us courage and faith open the door that you would come in and dine with us. And Lord, we're trying to follow you, but we're having trouble finding our way through and our values are compromised and we're assimilated to a different identity and a different story and different values. I pray that you'd give us the course correction that we need. Teach us to hear your voice and to take the life that you offer, that we would eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lead on, Lord Jesus, and teach us to follow. We pray in your name. Amen.